Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to discover they started out reading books about stars and now teach their mentees to reach for the stars. Or that they sometimes produce podcasts from their old high school bedroom now filled with toys of younger siblings. Maybe that's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, I realize I've told many of our guests about the goal of the podcast, but never you, the actual listener. The folks bringing you this podcast aim to humanize scientists for the public and for ourselves by sharing the successes, failures, and journeys of scientists through storytelling and humor. Everyone working on the podcast does this because we envision a culture and science where everyone belongs, scientists are trusted, and the struggles we each face are accepted and respected. We are building this vision by showcasing the warmth, vulnerability, and humanity of scientists of all backgrounds. Our first step is growing the Deeper Than Data podcast growth and quality, the diversity of our guests, and resources we provide our community. In fact, our Twitter account, which is managed by Jevin Lorty, has curated tweets and articles for when you need an emotional pick-me-up or want to learn more. Jevin has done a great job of throwing in jokes and memes, too. You can check it out. Our Twitter is at Deeper Than Data, all one word. Already, for today's episode, we have an interview, nay, a conversation that mixes humor, reflection, stars, Star Trek, nerds, chemistry, mentoring, complete openness, more nerds, and an enchanting laugh from our guest, Wes Marner. Let's dig into the chat with Wes Marner. Thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you? I'm doing really good. Thanks for thanks for the conversation today. Of course. Yeah, happy to have you on here. We're going to go ahead and get started like we usually do. Could you say your name and pronouns you use? You bet. I am Wes Marner. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. And if someone was going to bump into you on the street today, what might you look like? Oh, my gosh. Um, I am... <laughs> I'm your typical middle-aged balding white guy. <laughs> I live in Wisconsin, so got a beard, got the glasses, and uh, I don't know. I'd like to think a middle-aged nerd vibe. I don't know. <laughs> you got some books in the background, a piano. Um, you got the setup for good audio recording. I feel like you're uh, fitting in the nerd. And I think, is that your degree also in the background? Yeah, that's my, I got, I'm in my home office, so I got the diplomas up on the wall and all that too. Solid nerd vibe going. Appreciate it. Entity identities you'd like to highlight about yourself? I don't. I'm a gay man. Uh, I'm a family guy. I am. I have a husband and one daughter. Um, I'm a scientist, right? That's why we're here talking. Uh, actually, an engineer. I draw a distinction between a scientist and engineers. So I'm an engineer by training. You noted the piano in the background. I'm an aspiring piano hobbyist. Yeah, I guess anything else maybe will just come out as we talk. I never know what to say about myself. <laughs> oh, we'll get into it. You're going to have uh, over an hour all about you. So, Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll see what comes out. <laughs> I am actually curious, though. Um, you're saying you're drawing a distinction between engineering and scientists. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. I like to think of engineers as the people that tinker with parts. And scientists are the ones that identify the parts and figure out what they do. Um, I think some of my early science training was in a group that had a big complement of both engineers and scientists. And it was really cool to see uh, the engineers think up ridiculous ways to put biological parts together and then the scientists be that would never work and the engineers are like yeah well yeah well let's let's give it a shot let's tinker you know um so uh i like to think of it as a tinkering mentality i suppose as an engineer um my friend i'm a chemical engineer and so my friends when i'm talking to them we refer to ourselves as a little bit as glorified plumbers um so you know depending on who i'm talking to i might embrace that as well and also what you're trying to dissolve. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Well, speaking of tinkering and maybe being a glorified plumber, not the greatest segue, <laughs> but um, what is your connection to science currently? Yeah. So I don't work at the bench anymore. I don't do research. Uh, I am a, my title is education program manager. Uh, I work with the Mortgage Institute for Research, which is uh, on the UW-Madison campus. And uh, my work is really to do, to work with the people who are scientists and engineers in training and to work with them as they're developing all of the skills that they need to be successful when they are finished with their training and go on with their career um, and are going through a period of discernment about what they want to do when they're done with their training. Uh, I try really hard to be a resource for them to help with skills development, career guidance, and those sorts of things as they figure out what they want to do. So I guess a little bit of a sort of an advisor role, but not the, not the, research advisor role that you would think of for a graduate student or a postdoc. Um, I also spend a little bit of time in the public engagement side uh, of the Mortgage Institute as well, where uh, a big part of what we do is taking our science to the public and engaging with the society that we serve. And so I spend a certain amount of my time too thinking about how do we do that? How do we do it well? And for my role, how do we get our scientists do that well and to be good communicators when they move on with their careers. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that because you are in the end trying to make a scientist well-rounded beyond their specific little topic area. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to say it's a, it's a way of um, helping with the formation of the whole scientist and not just the really awesome researcher, right? Because if you're going to be a great scientist, you never do it alone you're always, you're either in a company with a group, you're running a startup, you're in a, you're running a lab group and either way you got to be able to work with people. You got to be able to collaborate. You got to be able to manage projects. Um, and you got to be able to tell the public what you do, right? Um, it's a lot more than, than slinging a pipetter. <laughs> All right. So we're going to get to like how you became kind of this mentor, um, for, scientists of all different backgrounds, but I want to go back first to figure out who Wes was as a kid with my favorite question of who was your first crush? See, I knew you were going to ask this and I still don't know how I want to answer it. I, I, I kid you not. I have been stressing about this question because I honestly don't remember having like a legit crush as a kid or a middle schooler or whatever. Like it doesn't, I can't think of anybody. I even joked with uh, my husband earlier today. I was like, I'm just going to say Mr. Spock because I'm a nerd. But uh, <laughs> um, but I don't know. I don't really recall having one. And I don't know if that's because I'm like. Yeah. Well, I mean, to some people, it's just not their thing. For me, that's kind of what I live for. I feel like I'm a, I'm a romantic and that's the juiciest stuff that I can ever, ever get to in life. So besides perhaps crushing maybe not crushing, ambivalently crushing. Uh, what was Wes like in third grade? I am tickled you picked third grade because my daughter's a third grader right now. And um, I was, I was a really shy kid. I was like this quiet, don't talk to me. I won't speak with you kind of kid. Um, but I was really, I was really academic. Like I was very motivated by school. Um, and so a lot of what I did as a kid was just trying to, to please the adults and do a really good job in the school. Right. Um, I was not particularly athletic. No one in my family is particularly athletic. Um, and I wasn't particularly social. So I was just kind of that quiet kid that, read a little bit, you know, played with action figures and things like that, but kind of lived in his own head. My family moved around a lot when I was young. And so I was constantly changing schools. And so I never really had like a big group of friends. Like I see my daughter now and she's got like all these friends that she's known for four years because she's met them in kindergarten. I was like, yeah, I don't know what that's like. Like I, that was not my elementary school experience at all. And uh, yeah, I was just kind of a shy nerd even then. But I remember, you know, um, wasn't Legos. There were these like 
construction things. Uh, what were they called? They were called constructs. That's what they were. It wasn't like connects or Legos or whatever. Anyway, they were these little plastic tinker toy things. And I built space shuttles and spaceships and I had a solar system book. I still have the solar system book actually here somewhere, but yeah, that was my life as a little kid was doing stuff like that. Nice. Yeah. I was similarly building things quite a bit. I remember with, with Legos making amusement parks and rides that could move around. Um, but I, I do feel fortunate that I was like in one spot so I could, I could know some people were there books that you were really into or series? I read a lot of space books. Like I mentioned that solar system book, like I'm not kidding. Like it was one that came out, this is going to date me a little bit, but this is one that came out just a little bit after Voyager two had visited Neptune. And I was totally enamored with that thing, like the pictures and all the facts and all that kind of stuff. I read stuff like that all the time. Um, I do remember reading a bunch of choose your own adventure books. Um, which interesting enough, my daughter has discovered and she loves them too. So I was like, yeah, okay, maybe this stuff rubs off. But um, yeah, I remember the choose your own adventure books. And I remember like sort of dog earing all the different endings and trying to figure out like, how far can I make it before, you know, my, I don't know, my character falls into like a lava pit or something. I don't know what happens in those books anymore, but um, I read a lot of those, read some Hardy Boys. Um and then eventually when I discovered Star Trek, because I'm a massive Star Trek fan, like that's then all I read was Star Trek books. So, yeah, I'm, I'm already sensing you're doing a bit of like hypothesis testing with these choose your adventure books where it's like, OK, A versus B. All right. I get a little bit further with this one. Next experiment and reading books about solar system. Do you think that was like your first time really engaging with science and it just grew from there? Oh, totally. Yeah, it absolutely was. It was, uh, that it, the space program was just, I, I don't know. It like, I don't know. It, it, it lit something in me being excited about those kinds of things. Um, when I was really young, <clears throat> we spent most of those years in a super rural part of West Virginia and there wasn't a lot of science in schools. There certainly wasn't anything like the science opportunities that some kids can get now. And so I remember, you know, again, this is going to date me a little bit, but like every space shuttle launch was, we watched it live on TV, you know, in the classroom. And it was really exciting when that happened. And I had all the toys and that kind of stuff. And I couldn't, uh, I could not absorb too much information. You know how like some kids get like, they're like, no, everything there is to know about dinosaurs. Right. Mm -hmm. And they can tell this you kid. like, oh, okay. You were a dinosaur kid. All right. Yeah. I was a dinosaur so, kid and trains. Dinosaurs and trains. Okay. I have a family member that was like total train kid. And you could, and you could like recite everything about it. And like adults that you meet that like could care less about dinosaurs and trains. You were going to tell them about it anyway. Right. I was that kid, except it was like planets and space and Voyager probes and pioneer probes and Mars missions and all that stuff. Like that was me as a kid. Did you want to be an astronaut? Because I, when I was young, I don't think I really oh, wanted yeah. to be a paleontologist. But I, I remember in kindergarten, I was telling, I think we we're going around saying like what we wanted to be later, and I said I wanted to be a conductor. And I think the teacher was like, "Oh wow, like this kid knows about like classical music conductors and wants to go <laughs> that route." But in my head, I was like, "I just want to drive a train and yeah. be that conductor." Be, yeah, and like like you know, pull the whistle and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. Um, I I wanted to be an astronaut. I really wanted to go to space camp. Oh my god, space camp was like the thing. I like begged my parents to go to space camp, but um, yeah, I kind of I kind of didn't want to be an astronaut. So did that continue, you know, we're, we're talking about third grade. Did that go into middle school and high school as well? It did. It, it changed. So I like space nerdy kid, right? Third grade, fourth grade. And then when I was in the fourth grade, that's when Star Trek, the next generation came on TV. Right. And it was like the perfect time to capture my imagination, you know, with like a science fiction TV show. And there was something about it, which as an adult, now that I've met so many other scientists that are like, yeah, like Star Trek was like my hook for science. I'm like, okay, like that wasn't too weird. But at the time I was like, 
yeah, this is my thing. Like Star Trek's my jam. I'm you know, forget about like actual space missions. I'm going to tell you all about like science fiction space missions, but that ch I chased that all through elementary school and middle school and on into high school. And it started to drift from like this obsession with space and space science and all that. And like, tell me all about the planets to just like curiosity about exploring things and about sort of that humanistic side of exploring the universe. And I think that kind of evolved into the curiosity that I had for science and how things work and what technology could do to help people explore and help people, you know, uncover things they didn't know before. It kind of kept feeding that fire a little bit of like, there was like this fictional imaginative element that I was getting through the entertainment side of Star Trek. And then I was also really into the science in school. And both of those things kind of kept feeding each other as I got older and older. Right. And I, I'm not much of a Star Trek person or, or Star Wars, although I'll forgive you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> One is clearly superior to the other, just so you know. I would agree. I would agree. The little that I know of both, um, I will lead Star Trek um, any day of the week. Good answer. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting parallel. And you're, you're talking about like building this fire and feeding the fire. So I not too long ago read, read Dune before I even knew Dune was coming out as a movie. And the nice thing about science fiction, it is trying to take some sort of science that exists now and taking it to the next part. And maybe you've got something that is working but you don't have the pieces yet, which means the engineer can come in and start figuring out how it works. So I can only imagine like on your side, it's like you get to play in that space of creativity to start tinkering in your head, even, you know, as a teenager of how can I actually get some of this stuff to work? Yeah. There's definitely an element to it of that's problem solving. Right. Um, and I think, everybody's a little, I, okay. So I'm an engineer and I'm biased and all that good stuff, but I think everybody's got a little engineer in them, right. About something in their life. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, there's like for, for a lot of scientists and for people that are into science and technology and things like that, it's, there's like an aspirational side to it. That is a, what can we do with what we got to make the next step? And preferably, you know, make the next step a better step than what we've done. Um, and so there's an optimism that comes with it that I think resonated with me, too. Yeah, I would agree. I think everyone has a bit of an engineer and scientist and lots of other identities within them. And I know like as a as a kid or even adult now, if I'm doing some task that I didn't think I knew how to do and just through problem solving, it's like, oh, I, I managed to fix the water valve or fix this thing that's like really essential within the household. Like that's a great engineering feat for me, the glorified plumber again. Um, but I think that that problem solving that comes with engineering or trying to manage problems is really rewarding too. So it's a nice curiosity. I think I'm going to ask you some questions. You're, so you're a biologist. Is that right? Like kind of your, your wheelhouse is biology. If I got that right or not, I, I grew up, <laughs> Quote, unquote, I feel like I grew up like a naturalist or biologist. So I, I spent a lot of my time uh, down by riversides, you know, chucking rocks, playing in mud, went to the zoo and aquarium all the time. I think that continued probably until middle school. And I think that's when comedy took over. Adult Swim was really popping off. And so went down that rabbit hole. And... Originally was actually was originally going to school or trying to apply to college for music composition, where I gained all the skills to know how to do a podcast and edit that. But started slowly getting into psychology, neuroscience, which led to biology, which led to well, how does this actually interact with people? So got me into public health. Skip a few years now doing nutritional sciences and trying to figure out the the better ways to characterize muscle health, the bioimaging techniques. Now I just like, I like talk. I'm still that curious kid. I think in the naturalist, I think is really, I'll take a little bit of information from here, from here, from here and tell people cool stuff. You know, I'm basically telling people about my dinosaurs again, but I was going to ask you like, where'd the dinosaurs <laughs> go? Like, 
the dinosaurs are still there. I two nights ago, um, although they're not technically dinosaurs, um, proudly showed my roommate a video of a uh, a saltwater crocodile uh, eating a leg of meat. And I was like, this is really cool. We should go see the alligators <laughs> at the zoo. Um, so it's still there, but I think it's mixed in. Yeah. Yeah. It's diversified a little bit. Yeah. Adding some chemistry with cooking, um, you know, botany of harvesting, going to the farmer's market. I think it is, it's still that curiosity and trying to figure out like, oh, where's science and everything else? Yeah. So, you got some, there's some fascination in there. I hear it. I hear it. But back to you. So did you have people like in your life who were encouraging you to go into science even before you were going into undergrad? Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, I think I just kind of always assumed that was a path I was going to take. Um, my, so my upbringing in my family life when I was a kid, about the time I was in late middle school, like kind of our household kind of fell apart. My parents split up. It was really ugly. Um, my dad's like alcoholic problems, things like that. And so we ended up being in a position where we had changed states. Uh, for the last couple of years of my high school, financially, we were not well off. Um, there was just a lot of uncertainty. And so it was kind of understood that whatever I did, I had to be self-supporting, right? Like I, you know, had to do it on my own. And, um, to the extent that anybody does these things quote on their own. And I knew I was good at math in school, or I thought I was good at math in school. Um, my mother was a high school chemistry teacher. Okay. She was actually my high school chemistry teacher in a really small school. And that's not awkward at all. And, um, just sort of the natural choice that came out of that was like, well, I need to be an engineer because I can make a good living that way. I can pay for my school and that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it at a state school that has a strong, uh, intern co-op education program so I can pay my way through college. Um, and so that's what I did. I went to Virginia tech, uh, as a chemical engineer. Um, and it was mainly cause I was like, well, I think I've got an aptitude for engineering and this will pay the bills. So let's go do that. And so that's, that's where I started. Um, so I kind of knew I was going to do science or something like it because that was what, that was where the, the, that was where my aptitudes were in a way that I can make a living. Right. Um, and so there was that like just responsibility element to it. Um, I think if I had gone back, maybe I would have been more of a, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I was always into science. I don't, I can't imagine another path that I would have taken, um, at that point. And, you know, having a science teacher as a mom, right? Like I was around science. I had done the, the summer camp at, you know, a university for chemistry and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, yep, yep. I'm a scientist. I'm a nerd. This is what I'm going to do. Like, let's just, let's, let's stay on this path. Right. And I'd imagine if you were doing poorly or remotely poorly in one of these classes, you've got someone looking over your shoulder to be like, well, let's, let's fix this or teach you exactly how this is going to work. Yeah, certainly in, in the, in the sciences, there was always like this, I was always connected to the people that were teaching me, right. Especially by the time I got to high school for those really formative high school times. And then for the things that didn't really resonate so well with me, like English class and literature <laughs> and things like that, I was like, yeah, okay, we'll just, we'll, we'll get through the Shakespeare and we'll move on. You know, so. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's it's really nice to hear too because I was the same way. Um, I still, I still think I struggle a little bit with poetry. Like I will try now and then. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, like, it's like I know people love this. I think I get into my head of trying to interpret it, um, but it was the same thing back in high school. It's like the English just wasn't my jam. But if you, I can tell you about valence states and shells, and that just sticks with me. Maybe this is also your case, like in undergrad, I don't think I had as much direction as like you did to be like, okay, there's, here's the job I'm going to do to be self-sufficient. I, I honestly thought I was going to be graduating college with a bachelor's and something, get a job. I didn't know what in, and it didn't really strike me until I think my sophomore year when I was taking 
18 credits of just science and working a bit in a science lab. And just notice I'm excelling at all this stuff. I had a professor talk to me at the end of the class or at the end of the course of a botany course. And it's like, hey, you're really good. Like, what's your next step for, you know, maybe graduate school? And that was like the first time they kind of dawned on me like, oh, like science is kind of my home. Like it, it makes a bit of sense. Not sure if that happened or anything like that happened for you. Uh, I, you know, it kind of did. So I tend to have a very play it safe personality. Right. And I really, especially earlier in my career and certainly during school, I liked having a path put in front of me and I was like, okay, I know what I got to do because that's the path. That's the way the road goes. Right. Um, and so when I was an undergrad, I, I had sort of a series of fortunate events, right? So I was an undergraduate on my way to be a chemical engineer. And at the time I was, uh, at Virginia tech for chemical engineering, it was very much, you're going to be a chemical engineer and you're going to go work in some sort of petroleum based <laughs> organization and you're going to make plastic or you're going to, you know, like that kind of, because that's just what chemical engineers did. And by chance, there was a DuPont uh, factory that was near in my hometown that accepted college students every other semester as a co-op program. So I was like, okay, this is awesome. I can live at home. I can go work at DuPont, save all my money, pay for college. So I made spandex for every other semester for like four years. It was a Lycra plant. Hot. Oh my God. You have no idea. Like, let me tell you, all right, sidebar. So as a closeted gay man in his early twenties, sitting in research meetings where people from the knitting division come down from headquarters in Delaware to show you the latest in lingerie knitting with Lycra with several engineers that are of my current age really awkward really really awkward um i remember being in there's like a boot camp they put you through for the chemistry and everything else and there's this guy who is a very well respected chemist uh who is teaching all of us very young people about polymer chemistry and he comes over and he and, and all of my fellow co-ops who were all college students i had come out to them and he comes over and he leans on my table and he looks at me and he goes tell me son do you like looking at the lady's legs? <laughs> it's like, oh God. it's like, what, what, what do I say? I was like, yes. <laughs> you know, and like all my friends are there just like dying there in the class. And he was like, well, fortunately we've got Lycra. And I was like, oh my God. Anyway. <laughs> so I'm working at Lycra, I'm working at DuPont and, um, these folks, like I, I happened to land in an R and D position there. And so I was working alongside PhD engineers. And so I was able to have all these conversations with them. Like, how'd you get your PhD? What's graduate school like? And something that I, that occurred to me is like, Hey, if I'm curious about something and I'm in a research career, I can chase that curiosity, right? Like there's not a curriculum to this and I'm not <clears throat> a process engineer that's obsessing over whether our yield was 98% or 99% last night. Like I can chase some things. And so I got really lucky there that, um, that got me to explore options for graduate school. And that kind of like, that was the fork in the road that sent me down this path. So it wasn't like somebody pulled me aside and said, have you thought about this? But it was more that I got to steep myself in an environment where people had already gone through that research experience. And I was kind of into, I was getting to see them operate and realize that was what I liked. And so that was a opportunity that was very formative for me because I could see what they do and identify pieces of myself in what they do and chase it. Yeah. And I feel like that's a great example of why having so many different perspectives in science is so incredibly important because when it's just the norm and you just go to a place and like, and people are just doing their jobs and being themselves, then you're like, Oh, I, you know, I can see myself in here or it's standard for me to be interested in something that might be seen as nerdy or standard. If I necessarily identify with the people back home or anything like that. Well, and that's why, that's why I love what you're doing here. Having these conversations with scientists, of so many different backgrounds, right? Because if you're, 
you know, I, I was a privileged white kid, middle-class upbringing, right? So it was easy for me to see people like me being scientists, right? And I was among scientists in a factory in my hometown, most of whom like grew up in the nearby area, right? So I was like, okay, these people are like me and it's easy for me to my, for me to imagine myself like them, right? And I think for young people now, the more folks of many different identities are able to see people of many different identities be scientists and be their whole self as scientists, it kind of it demystifies the whole thing and lets people be like, hey, this is something I can do, too. This is something I can pursue. So I like I really appreciate what you're doing that. You're kind of letting people take off the white coat and the nerdy glasses and just be human beings that like science, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I feel like it's my, my little bit I can contribute as another privileged white man, um, hopefully giving voices to people who may not always be represented. Like, I, I bet you and I agree. It's like if you can just take if you can take all the way the societal pressure on those people who are underrepresented just to make them feel like they have to conform to a patriarchal white society, if you can get rid of that, then just massive amounts of creativity and passion and innovation will just come naturally. I mean, it's to me, sometimes it's just amazing that people can get through it and still create new things and not just be bogged down by like, God damn, like, damn, my white male colleague also said this about me today again or thinking about like what do i have to hide about myself when i go to work today right like i i spent not a small amount of my you know time as uh an undergraduate and in certain jobs being like okay how am i going to stay in the closet today you know and that takes it takes mental bandwidth it creates anguish and you know i've been lucky that i haven't had any terrible experiences but certainly people have and the less we can, the more we can mitigate that, oh, the better. And so I've, I've stalked you. I've done a little bit of research, read quite a few <laughs> of your, your Twitter posts. So oh I know boy. what happens next in your life, but I'll get it out here on, on the audio recording. So now you, let's say you're wrapping up with undergrad. You got your next decision to make. I think you go right to graduate school. I did. So I applied to a bunch of graduate schools. Um, and all I really knew was that I wanted to go to graduate school. And the only research areas I had had been exposed to had been polymer science because I was making spandex. Right. And, you know, that was kind of thing I'd done. And so I had a few acceptances and I had narrowed it down to two schools, Berkeley and uh, another spot on the East coast and could not make up my mind. I remember agonizing with one of my friends like day after day, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I can't, I visited both, couldn't make up my mind. And in something that was shockingly uncharacteristic of me, I honest to God just left it to chance. I was like, I'm going to flip a coin and whichever one comes up, I like, I completed both applications. I wrote both checks to matriculate. I signed all the paperwork, buttoned up the envelopes. And I flipped the coin and the one that came up there at the post office, that's the one that went in the slot. And it was Berkeley. I, <laughs> I tell my mother that and she's like, she lost her mind. She was like, are you kidding me? She was like, that is like one of the biggest decisions you've ever made. And you did it that way. And I'm like, yeah, I did. So anyway, uh, very unlike me, but I was indecisive and that's what I did. And it turned out to be great. Well, first of all, I told everybody I was going there. They all lost their mind. Right? So, I remember everybody, th I'll give you these like, to give you the sense of where I was coming from and where I was going to, right? I told one of the managers that I worked with at DuPont where I was going and uh, not my boss, but somebody else in the group. And he threw his hands up in the air and he goes, oh, damn it, kid. You're not going to be one of those firebombing hippies that come out of the West Coast, are you? And I was like, yeah, I guess I am. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I am. <laughs> you know, so there was like this, oh my God, you're going where? Um, but I went, I'd never been, I never traveled really before, 
or anything like that. And we just packed my little dorm room size apartment into a U-Haul and drove across the country and I landed in California. And that just opened up a world for me. I had never lived in a city. I had certainly never lived in a place where it was comfortable to be out of the closet. I had never really been exposed to a graduate school environment where you really are around a bunch of people who are all there because you've got like this common curiosity and desire to pursue something like advanced research. And it was just like, it was like simultaneously overwhelming and overjoying at the same time. I was like, I love this, this, like, this is, this is who I am. Right. It also gave me another five years of defined path. And because I like path, like that was, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It was nice to have like, okay, I don't have to make decisions for a while. I can keep going, but it was great. And I, I landed in a lab that did biology, um, did biological engineering. My advisor, one of my co-advisors is an out gay man. There were several gay folks in the lab. Everybody else was in the lab was like, you're gay. I don't care. Whatever. We're all, we're coworkers. We're friends. And to this day, I, they're some of my dearest friends, um, that were my coworkers there. And that was when I felt like I started to figure out really who I am. Right. So maybe some of that, maybe some of that figuring out process that people do when they're an undergrad, I waited to grad school to do because I was a little further from home and I was a little freer to figure some of those things out. In a more open society. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let me tell you, Southwest Virginia is very different from Northern California. <laughs> Just in case anyone was wondering they are completely different planets. Do you remember anything that anything that you learned about yourself? Learned about myself. I think you know, I would describe it less about learning about myself and more about just being comfortable with myself. I think I figured out how to step out of what I had been told my whole life with a very conservative upbringing, conservative environment and really be like, "No, that's not how I feel. That's not how I think. This is how I feel. This is how I think. And I'm okay saying it. Right. Um, and these are the things I care about. I care about science for the public good. I care about being able to be out of the closet without repercussions. I believe in, I believe in climate change, like, you know, all those kinds of things and, and being okay with talking about it and, being around people who were like-minded, which I did not have a lot of access to before. And like, it was just nice to be comfortable if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm so glad that, that you got that moment. Cause I can only imagine just, you know, the, the pounds of weight and just all the energy that comes with maintaining survival, which is kind of shed or at least made lighter. Yeah. Yeah. There was like, you know, we had some moments, um, in my first couple of years there, when, you know, you're still like, who are my friends here? Who can I trust? Who do I like share my deepest secrets with? You know, like all that stuff. And there was a couple of nights when uh, I was lamenting being single and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I remember having this like, I'm never going to find anybody, you know. And um, one of the people that was present, um, who who was also gay he was like if you're not gonna find him here you're not gonna find him <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh my god I, 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 I. you know um but just being able to like do that and have people like this is your place right like this is where you're gonna be able to find folks that was amazing right and and that's how it happened i met my husband and you know now we're let's see what we do some quick math here we're 18 years later almost and it's worked out, you know, we're in a great spot. Was this also about the time you, you know, you're saying you believe in climate change. You are really interested in science for the public good. Was this the time that you started doing more outreach science communication, trying to give back? Maybe you're doing that already. You know, actually, no, <laughs> I didn't do. So me doing this podcast, notwithstanding, I am a really shy person. And I didn't like, I was still in my shell a little bit. And one of the things that I realized as I was going through 
school, graduate school, was that I really liked having the chance to mentor people one-on-one, right? I worked with a lot of undergraduates. Um, I took some extra classes in how to do good teaching, right? Um, Took on extra loads as TAs, not because it was a stipend or whatever, but because I like doing the teaching. Um, And so I like, I I was like, I really like that one-on-one more formal education piece of it. And that like working side by side of the bench with somebody piece of it. And, uh, and that was initially actually what made me think I wanted to go the route of becoming faculty somewhere, um, which I did not do. And, but it wasn't until later, like, as I was thinking about it, like, with my aged wisdom as I entered middle age, I started to realize that like what I really wanted to do was to take some of those science experiences that I had as a kid, those informal sciences experiences and those things that made me realize like, Oh, I want to be a scientist. This is what I want to do. And I was like, I want to do that for other people. And be an amplifier that way instead of being an amplifier by training people, if that makes sense. They're both important. Um, But I think where I thrive was working with people earlier on and helping them realize like, oh, science is cool. Science is all right. You know, even if I don't do science, I kind of have a better sense of what it's for, why why people do it. So I'm also imagining uh, towards the end of your graduate school you're faced with another decision and it's a bit more open um you don't have as much of a defined path did you go fellowship route you're thinking faculty was this you're you're still thinking faculty around this time i'm thinking faculty around the time and i thought i knew what that was all about and i very much did not so, so what I, what I did was that's so right after I finished graduate school, I came here to UW and I started working at, um, uh, Bioenergy Research Center. And at the time going into it, I thought it was going to be kind of like a, a pseudo postdoc kind of thing. Like, um, I was working to start up one of the labs that was part of the center. It was going to be kind of a service facility, but there was also going to be an independent research component. And I was like, this is an opportunity to learn how to manage something right? Starting up this facility, but then I'd also get to do some independent research work. So I came here, my husband, bless his heart. He moved here sight unseen in a February and he's from Texas originally. So like that was, that was something. That's love. It's love. And we're still here. We fell in love with the place. So, um, so I start. I I did that. And, uh, in the first, after the first year there, I did one faculty interview and it was an unmitigated disaster of an interview. So I don't know if you and I already talked about this or not, but um, so I went to this interview. It was at a chemical engineering department, not going to tell you where. And I went in and I like I cannot even describe to you just how poorly this <laughs> interview went i you know gave my research seminar and and that was okay because that was largely based on my prior work and i was like that's a talk i knew how to give and then when it came time to go to do the chalk talk to talk about what i wanted to do it was like i i don't even know how to describe it like i that was when i realized it was like running a research program is not for me right like picking those directions is not for me And it went so poorly. And I say this because, you know, I'm my, my lived experience, right? It went so poorly that they canceled the dinner I was to have with them that night (laughs) and they changed the venue to a burger joint in town. And I had dinner with one faculty member and went home the next day. It was terrible. Um, so I left that demoralized one might say, but I was like, yeah, this is not a path that I want to be on. So, you know, I kind of, I stayed where I was at. I still enjoyed the work I was doing at the bioenergy center, but I stayed there and licked my wounds a little bit and tried to figure out what I wanted to do next. And that was when I really started seriously considering what do I like? What are my strengths? And that's when the mentoring was still there. 
So I experimented a little bit with doing some outreach alongside the outreach group at the Bioenergy Center. I really enjoyed doing that. Um, and so that was when I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. And that's, that's when I knew like, okay, outreach was for me. It took me a while to land where I am now. Um, we took another detour. I went and took a private sector job for a while because it paid really, really well. And we needed to be able to afford our adoption. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, we made that detour for a while, deliberately so. Um, but then I came back to the university to mortgage. Yeah. I actually want to go back real quick because it sounds, um, like when you were in that interview that bombed, I think people listening to this right now might be like, that sounds so incredibly scary. Like why go for that? But it's so, I think it's so important to have those leaps into, into something unknown and fail absolutely miserably because you get to find out specifically, this is not my path. And just that absolute no is so valuable. We don't like it in the moment, but like, you know, you're able to tell the story, you survived. But I think sometimes you ha we have that fear of not trying to achieve a little bit more or going to something scary. As I was sort of preparing for this conversation, because I was like, you know, we're, I'm probably going to tell that story. Um, I was like, good God, what would have happened if I had gotten that job? You know, like I, I have friends from graduate school have got, who have gone on to become faculty. They're very successful. Um, and but I've gotten to see kind of firsthand what they go through to get the position, to get tenure. Um, and it's rewarding for them. They love it. But after having seen it, I was like, that's that's not my game. Right. And that's one that if I had not had that <laughs> terrible experience, right, then I might still be chasing that path that I thought was the right one for me and absolutely wasn't. And I'm coming to a realization about myself around like the area that I'm working in too. So I'm slated to graduate in the next couple of months and I'm, I'm good at doing my research. I understand the area and really I, I, I you know, I mentioned characterizing muscle health through different bioimaging techniques. And we do this within a couple of different populations. One of them are, are people who are undergoing treatment for lung cancer. So I've had, um, you know, my grandma had lung cancer. The, the progression of her disease is exactly what we're seeing for some of these populations that we're, we're dealing with. My mom's a smoker. It could happen. Um, not guaranteed, but could happen. And just this past week, I was thinking, it seems like a noble cause to keep going down that research to help. But I think I realized, like, I'm just not going to be that person who's going to come up with that cure or way to manage, mitigate that. But I can be the person who's going to sit at the bedside with my family member to translate their concerns to the doctor, to the scientist and vice versa. I can hold their hand like when they're suffering a little bit and also be honest and open about what's going on. Yeah. Good for you for doing that. That's, that's such a challenging thing to have to face and to have to do for loved ones, you know, and to be so cognizant of it. Yes. When it comes to actual practice, <laughs> that'll be a little different. Um, but it seems like People my my age, I'm 30, getting closer to 31. This is probably the people that you're mentoring as well. Um, and I, I got this model of thinking, where can you really go and what you can be passionate about from um, a podcast called How to Save a Planet? So it's asking, you know, you can get overwhelmed by thinking about all the things that need to happen about climate change. Instead of getting really worried about that, trying to tackle every single aspect, think of what needs to be done what you really like to do and what you're talented at. And I think I've tried to take that model into other things. And I think realizing like I'm good at kind of the science, it needs to be done, but I'm just not as passionate about it. But I am passionate about like talking to people about their science and stories and being that connection point and something that needs to get done so we can bring other people into science too. I really appreciate people that are in the position like you are to be kind of that linkage between 
scientists and an audience of non-scientists maybe or different scientists right because you got to be you got to you have to be fluent to be able to work with sort of both sides of that coin and like i, I don't know if that translate maybe isn't quite the right word but you got to be able to walk that line and that can be a tricky thing to do but when you can bring folks together like that that's when people get inspired. That's when people get curious. That's when people learn things about themselves. So now you're either in a mentoring role and doing some science outreach too. I feel like you, you know, you're you're talking to a lot of postdocs and graduate students, but I think they're an interesting spot where, you know, they may know 80% of like who they are. They're still trying to figure out maybe specific job directions. They know enough kind of about their values, but maybe there's some to develop. Do you have a strategy? It's not my position and it would be outrageously presumptive of me to be like, this is what you ought to be doing, right? Like that's, that's not it at all. But it's about saying, what are the parts that you have as a scientist that are super well-formed and that you know you want to hang on to in your next step, whatever that might be? And what are the parts that you don't, right? And what are the parts that you want to grow? And what are the parts that you don't, right? And if somebody, you know, I have worked with some people who are, yeah, they've, I mean, they know exactly what those things are. They know exactly what they want to do next. And in those cases, I'm like, all right, or what skills do you want to grow? Let's go. I'll go find you some resources. Um, I'll connect you with people that can help you grow those things. And we're off to the races. Some other folks might be like, ah, you know, I, I, I've talked to some people who are like, I've been in academia. All I know is academia, but I want to pursue a career outside of it. And I don't know what that's like. What do I do? You know? Um, and so then it's about connecting them with other individuals who have that lived experience and are willing to share it with folks earlier in their career. Right. And then people can explore, can find mentors and can really get a sense of like, what is life like in where they think they want to be and use that to help do some of that actualization. Whether you're 30, 31 in a postdoc thinking about what you want to do next, whether you're 22 thinking about, do you want to go into a job? Or do you want to go to grad school? Whether you're in high school thinking, do you want to go to college or what do you want to do? The more information you can get from people that have already been there, and can openly share with you their experience in a way that isn't telling them what to do, but just giving them information that they can select from and figure out what jives with them. That's how people make decisions, right? And hopefully make informed ones that they feel good about. And so that's kind of what I try to provide for people is to say, you know, if you want to go and, you know, like you're thinking about running a startup or firing up a startup, let me connect you with people that do that. Let me connect you with the people that fund them. Let me connect you with people that went that route and decided not to and everywhere in between. So you can kind of gather data and make a decision. That's what scientists do. Right. So that's what I try to do with the folks I'm advising. So I think it's also we're in an interesting world that people can go and connect to lots of others. They also have access to infinite amount of information by the internet. Do you teach people to dig deep and kind of feel like how these reactions or this information is hitting them? So I feel like even, you know, my age as I'm still growing, I'm figuring out, okay, how did this one thing feel? Like I thought maybe, you know, like you faculty might be a path for me at some point, but does it get me excited or what, what do I get angry about? What is that signaling for? I'll be honest with you. You asking me the question in that way is making me realize that I don't do that enough is to say like, how does it, and maybe I do it too tangentially, but that's a great way to phrase it is like how, what's your gut reaction to some of this? I think maybe without realizing it, I would, for some of the decisions that I've made along my way, I was following my gut and for other decisions, I was following what I thought was quote the path. And in the times when I followed, quote, the path, I wasn't as sure about it until my gut was like, nope, this is the way you need to go, right? Because this is what feels right and this is what resonates with you. So, And I think that's helped me realize like this podcast, science communication, or however I turn this is a good path for me. So I have now 
for years, and I think it's only increased when I've sat down and been in science seminars. They drive me bonkers, <laughs> and I just start to nitpick more and more and get more and more angry um, that this is kind of just a tradition that ex- that's accepted for science communication. And now I've started like looking for evidence, like, are science seminars actually effective means of communication? But then you flip that around. What happens on the edges of those? right? It's the one-on-one conversations with somebody that become a collaboration or you go to a conference, right? Like we go to like the national chemical engineering meeting. We call it the, the, my friends and I call it the plumbers convention. We go and you know, you see a bunch of dry scientific talks and you're like, you do the thing, like you check your email while you're in there and you spent the money on the travel, but it's the conversations that you have in the wings, the connections you haven't made before. And those like serendipitous connections, that make things move forward. Right. At least in science, I think a lot or that become connections that can advance your career later on. Right. And so it's the informality of it that works. And that's why formats like this, that can give you ideas. And that's why, you know, like one silver lining of this whole pandemic awfulness is that I now have much lower barrier to calling somebody and be like, we just have a zoom conversation and like have a pseudo face to face, get to know you. And you know what, if they're in California, if they're in Colorado, whatever, right. It's easier to have that conversation and you can bypass all the formal bits that you often would have to go through to get to know somebody. So that's been helpful. Okay. So I, damn it, Wesley, we're having fun and we're (laughs) we're running low on time. What are you proud of yourself for or about? I don't know the right preposition for that one, but I think you get the gist of what I'm trying to say. I could tell you things that I'm proud of career-wise and science-wise and things like that, but I'm proud of being what I think is a pretty good dad. Like, And I'm proud that I've got a career that I've made balance for that so that I can be a good husband. I can be a good dad for my daughter. And that as she grows up, I can try to be some of that voice for her to help her make great decisions as she gets older. Amen. And that's, <laughs> that is hard to do. I'm not saying I'm any good at it to be clear, <laughs> but I'm trying hard. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, one, one of the reasons I wanted to just make sure we had enough time because we still have yeah. our improvised game. Oh, first, I need a large number. 762. Um, and then genre of music. Uh, country. Country. Our improvised game, since you do quite a bit of mentoring, teaching, and, you know, impassioning the next generation of scientists... I felt like we could do an improvised game where we are going to rotate who's the student and advisor, and then a student will be seeking advice from the advisor based on a few different prompts. And these prompts will be, and scenarios for advice, will be based on suggestions that you have given. I can be either the student or advisor first, whatever you choose. You know what, I'm going to flip a coin here. You are the student. Okay, I'm the student. So I'm going to come to you. I need life advice because (laughs) I've received 762 jobs. Oh. 762 job offers. So this will be the scene. I will be the student. Yeah. You will be the advisor. Maybe we can do this in about like a minute or two scene. Okay. And then we'll go on to, to the next one. To the next one. All right. Okay. All right, here we go. Uh, Wes, do you have some? Do you have some time to talk? Absolutely, Ben. Come on in. What do you? What do you got? Well, you know, I just kept getting all these emails. Um, I mean, I feel pretty lucky, but I am trying to figure out my next job. You know, I've had some great publications, and people really seem to notice. I have seven hundred sixty-two job offers waiting for me in You're my. You're lying. <laughs> wow. <laughs> What are you going to do? You know, I'm thinking right now I can flip a coin 762 times. That should eliminate <laughs> about half of them. Yep. Do you have any uh, 
suggestions? Well, so I could tell you coin flipping is an excellent way to eliminate choices. I've done that once in my life. Um, you know, are there any, uh, <laughs> do they all pay well? Only two do. Oddly enough, most of them $5 per year. Ah, two of them okay. are, you know, 60 to $80,000. Okay. All right. Well, you know, uh, you got to make a practical decision here. So, you know, pick something that you think you can live with when you got the job. Um, do any of them inspire you, Ben? Yeah, one does. It says I can be a dolphin trainer uh, for one day a week and I still get paid $60,000. Hey, what does your gut tell you about that? Do you need to like, do you need to train dolphins? Do you need to swim with the fishes? <laughs> I think I need to we do it at least once before I absolutely swim with the fishes. Yeah. Chase your dreams, Ben. Okay. See you, Wes. Go for it. <laughs> so now you will be a student. I will be the advisor slash mentee or sorry, mentor. Um, the issue you're having your PI doesn't want to be featured on your new country music album. <laughs> All right. Ben. Oh, you Wes. Hey, yeah. Just hey. got in. Come on in. Oh, great. Glad I got a chance to talk with you. Hey, I need some advice. I'm having a little trouble with my PI. So I don't know if you know about this, but I've been working on this country album for a while one that kind of gets back to my Appalachian roots. And I really want my, my PI Dr. Xavier to, to be on this album, but he's just not interested and won't cooperate. Do you have any suggestions about what I could do about that? Yeah. Well, I, I do know I've, I've seen you on YouTube and you play absolutely lovely. And first I just want to, I want to say that. It's it's really nice. Thank um, you. It's also nice to see that. a scientist have a blend of music and also great research. So, with that said, ha, tell me tell me a little bit about how you've gone to uh, talk to Professor Xavier. You know, I went in and I was just talking about different ways that we can all express ourselves, and we were talking about different kinds of music that we like, and seemed to be getting along pretty well. And I said, well, you know, I've got this idea, right? Where I want to like share all of me with the world and like being in your lab is a really big part of who I am. And I'd really like a piece of him, you know, to be visible in this collaboration on this album. And, uh, the problem is like, it just doesn't feel like he wants to, he's not musically inclined. And so he's nervous about doing something like this. And so I'm trying to figure out how to how to get him to step out of his comfort zone a little bit. Yeah. Do you think there could be a middle ground where maybe Professor Xavier does a little bit of backup vocals? Maybe like you're on the cover art. Maybe he's just featured on one song versus the whole album. You know, that that's a good idea. Maybe we could do that. I was thinking about uh, maybe we could give him some background percussion or something like that. I don't know. Tambourine, cowbell, something like that. Might go back and offer some of that a little bit. Yeah, could even be a bonus track or something hidden. They used to do that back in the day. It's harder with the streaming services, but... That's true. You can always put a, a little B-side on there. Maybe some spoken word at the end or the um, album essay, maybe. Do people even read those anymore? Do those even happen? I don't know. Sure, they do in our world right now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think those are good approaches. And, you know, you could maybe this could be helpful where... Professor Xavier isn't on your album, but then you could do a song with him about the lab. So it could be good publicity. We still, could write. Yeah, you could write together. You could co-write. Yeah. We could be co-authors. You could be co-authors. There we go. Both first authors. Both first with the asterisks that we each contributed equally to this work. Exactly. Yes. I love that idea. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. See you later. <laughs> See you later. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our game. Ta-da. <laughs> Woo. -hoo.
Wes, it's been a blast. I, I really appreciate you sharing your story. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I, this was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I can't say how much I appreciate our guests coming on here and sharing their journeys to make our journeys a bit more clear, easy, or even just relieving for us. Plus, Wes's laugh is so delightful, and if you listen past the credits, you may just hear some more laughter. Or another strange thing like I do for all the other episodes. Until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Marketing by Jevin Lorty and website development editing by Julian Epp. Um, what do you need from me from here? Um, can you, can you do a simple of like, thanks. It was nice being on the podcast. I don't think oh, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I was trying to go. And, and then we can do I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I thought we had got there. Hey, Ben, thanks for having me on the podcast. I, this was a lot of fun. Thanks. And yeah. As always, <laughs> everyone signs up with, Hey, Ben. It's it's been great being on here. There also another bonus. Um, I don't know how many people realize this, but after the end credits of every single episode, I throw in something goofy and silly, and I think that moment we just had will go right in there. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> just make sure we had enough time because we still have yeah. our improvised game to oh, get to. I hope it's binary questions. I like those. Oh, these. Oh, yeah, it's mm. not. Did you pick one? Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll forgive you again. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank you. <laughs>